dinosaurs got lost and soon so we are fair So for now forget how I melt on top of me my dear Shoeshine is busking by the sinkhole in our parking lot again. He plays an original, low down no good feeling, for strip mall patrons and a Chalupa Hub employee on smoke break. I know all the words to low down no good feeling. It's a staple of Johnny's set. The no good feelings mostly due to women who have cheated Johnny, done him wrong. In the second verse, it's due to being broke, sick, and hungry. In the fifth, it's due to a garbage truck running over his dog. It's a Monday afternoon, late May, the brink of summer break. The strip mall parking lot is half full. The sinkhole, surrounded by orange cones, has swallowed one and a half spaces. Supposedly, a faulty drainage pipe has been eroding soil beneath the asphalt, and the city and mall management are playing chicken over who's going to pay for repairs. When I reach the sinkhole, Johnny's on the third verse. Live my day about a woman. He sings. Gonna make me lose my mind. I stand by the cones and listen. Johnny doesn't notice me. He closes his eyes when he plays, attacks his battered guitar with a plastic pick, as if the guitar were the source of all his troubles. I have five minutes to enjoy Johnny's twelve-bar laments until my shift starts at Cromley's Frozen Custard, where I work after school and on weekends. Cromley used to be a mediocre NFL linebacker. Now he's the premier name, locally, in Custard. At Cromley's, I scoop mint chocolate chip into waffle cones, sprinkle sundaes with pecans, coconut flakes, and gummy bears, squeeze bottles of caramel and chocolate syrup, top banana splits with maraschino cherries. The walls of Cromley's are covered with football memorabilia, jerseys, helmets, tickets, cleats, shoulder pads, The jerseys and helmets come in a rainbow of colors. Cromley played for seven different teams. It's senior year, and my high school PA announcements remind me to observe the dress code use designated crosswalks, pick up my yearbook in room 203, fulfill my financial obligations. And remember, today's the last day to sign up for Battle of the Band, says Mr. Beauregard, the assistant principal over the PA. See Mr. Finkley in the band room for more details. That's all for now. Have a great day, Wildcats. The last weeks of school are great wildcat days numbered. I sleepwalk through the hallways, daydream in poorly ventilated classrooms. I bubble scantrons, mechanically spin combination locks, swipe my student ID in exchange for tater tots and cheese pizza. I play dodgeball. On the opposing team are three of my Battle of the Bands competitors. Josh Rudin, bass of Piranha Box, Danny Quinn, drums of Meat Fancy, and Carlos Ayala, lead Vox of Dread Scott Walker. My band is called the Cadillac Swordfish. Currently, I am the Cadillac Swordfish's only member. It's been tougher than I had anticipated, recruiting additional swordfish. I've posted flyers in the cafeteria, badgered every member of the marching band drumline, tricked Mr. Beauregard into announcing Cadillac Swordfish auditions over the school PA, but still, no dice. In remedial math, I sketch ideas for the Cadillac Swordfish logo, 
a swordfish leaping over a Cadillac, a swordfish driving a Cadillac, a swordfish giving a Cadillac an oil change, a pretty girl in front of me wears a piranha box t-shirt, piranhas eviscerating a family of four, she's out of uniform and has been issued a detention. school's auditorium. This year's battle will be my first. The Cadillac Swordfish will have 15 minutes to impress Mr. Finkley, class treasurer Kate Wolotkowitz, and Barney Schmidtman of Schmidtman Home and Furniture with our slash my talent stage presence and audience response. In the past, battle victors were rewarded with free studio recording time and CD duplication from Uncle Stu's music shop, but Uncle Stu's was unfortunately gutted by a three-alarm fire earlier this spring. Now, Schmidtman Home and Furniture is the battle's exclusive sponsor, and grand prize is a chaise lounge. Second prize is a dinette set. Third prize is a duvet cover. Fourth prize is a pillow sham. I've been preparing for the battle for months now. I practice my scales, arpeggios, and chord progressions for an hour every night before I go to bed and take two guitar lessons a week from Johnny Shoeshine at his ever-shifting place of residence. Johnny's lived all over. I've had lessons in a houseboat, a trailer home, a bed and breakfast, a yurt, a condemned rendering plant, the servants' quarters of a historically registered mansion. Today's lesson is in a bungalow near a nine-hole golf course. I can hear tea time announcements and bellowed fours as the bungalow's owner, Sheila, serves us pink lemonade and strawberry shortcake. Okay. So read me your list, says Johnny, digging into his shortcake. Amber, I say. Next. Sophie. Next. Chloe. Next. Fiona. Next. Soma Lakshmi. Soma what? Johnny shakes his head, gulps down the remainder of his pink lemonade. Cross it right off. Soma Lakshmi? But she's really pretty. Don't matter. And smart. Don't matter. And I think I might actually have a chance. Come on now. I don't rhyme anything with so much Lakshmi. Uh-uh. What you want is a girl with a name like Angeline. Johnny puts down his fork and picks up his guitar. Angeline, Angeline, sweetest thing I've ever seen. Johnny's helping me write a love song to perform at the Battle of the Bands. I've never written a love song before. I've never been in love. Or maybe I've been in love a hundred times. It's hard to tell. I'm 18 and I've never even kissed a girl. Only one girl's ever agreed to go to a dance with me, and she canceled at the last minute because she said her mouth still hurt from getting her wisdom teeth removed. Johnny thinks the love song will change my fortunes. Of course, first I need to decide upon a girl to be in love with. I've made a list of the 12 strongest candidates. Daphne, I say. Next. Zoe. Next. Mackenzie. Next. Marsladies. You sure you don't know any no girl named Angeline? I've known Johnny for three years now. I first saw him perform outside the gas station on Fillmore and Wayne. He sang, Vultures steer clear of my bones, as my mom filled her Corolla with regular unleaded. 
after I got my license, commenced aimlessly cruising the city on lonely weekend nights. I saw Johnny everywhere, at intersections, on median strips, in drive through lanes, on rain-damaged couches at the edges of people's lawns. I'd been playing guitar since 7th grade. My dad had taught me a few basic chords and lent me his Neil Young and Elton John songbooks, but Johnny's playing was on a completely different level. My sophomore year, I spent hours listening to Johnny after school outside the supermarket, the AMC 12, Crouton Palace, the ATMs of credit unions and banks. I was convinced he was a genius. I never could understand why so many pedestrians and strip mall shoppers strode right past him, why so many rollerbladers and joggers and dog walkers weren't stopped dead in their tracks by his brilliance, why so many of Johnny's nickel and dime benefactors never truly listened to the art they were so meagerly supporting. How about Mary Lou? I know Mary. Yeah, it's a start. The thing with Mary, though, is her brother's not crazy about me. Don't matter. Love songs with Mary, right? Ain't for no brother. Mary's not really crazy about me either. Not yet. Yeah, but... So, I had a thing for Mary junior year, right? We had art class together, drawing and design one. I never talked to her, I was too nervous, but I thought that maybe if I drew her, I could get her to fall for me. So I did. My final portfolio was basically just pictures of her. I sketched her sophomore yearbook photo to fulfill my portrait requirement. I demonstrated my proficiency in shading by doing a charcoal study of her hair. I drew Mary with pencil, pastel, pen and ink, sharpie, conte crayon, crayola. I included her in my landscapes, did a still life of her hair accessories. My plan was to show her all the pictures at the end of the semester after I got my portfolio back, but unfortunately, things didn't go according to plan. Seldom do. You checking out or what? Not exactly. The day my portfolio was due, I was carrying a bunch of pictures of Mary in a manila folder from class to class. Drawing and design wasn't until last period. During math, we had a sub and weren't doing anything, so I left class for about five minutes to go to the bathroom. When I got back, there was this big crowd of kids around my desk. They were looking at all my pictures of Mary and laughing. By last period, word of the pictures had already gotten to Mary. She wasn't flattered. Instead, she got creeped out and told her brother I was stalking her. The next day at lunch, he threw me into one of the big rolling garbage cans in the cafeteria and told me I'd better not sketch his sister again, or else. I smelled like sloppy joes and chocolate milk, even after a couple of showers. Mary never saw the pictures. They were pretty good, too. My teacher gave my portfolio a B+. Johnny scratches at his scraggly salt and pepper beard. How about Ginny Bell? What? You know any Ginny Bells? No, I don't know any Ginny Bells. Perlene? No Perlines either. And Mary's definitely out. I would say so, yes. I would say Mary's definitely out. I've been taking lessons with Johnny since I was a junior. That's also what he calls me, Junior. My birth certificate says Bradley. My driver's license says Brad. Johnny claims he doesn't have a driver's license or a birth certificate. He doesn't talk about himself much. Mostly he talks about the old bluesmen, tells me how Robert Johnson sold his soul to the devil, how sleepy John Estes lost his right eye in a baseball game, how Pegleg Howell lost one leg to a gunshot and the other leg to diabetes, how Lead Belly made his first recordings while serving time for attempted murder in Angola prison. I sometimes wonder, are bluesmen bluesmen because their lives are hard, or are their lives hard because they're bluesmen? Might their lives have turned out better 
how they become passionate about happier music. My classmates listen to songs about bumping and grinding in nightclubs and bathing in Corvassier and making love on yachts. Johnny and I listen to songs about cuckoldry and dysentery and starving to death at the bottoms of wells. But it's too late now. This is the path we've chosen. All we can hope for now is that our path is kinder and gentler than the paths of the bluesmen who have come before us. Brittany. Nix. Serenity. Nix. Jingpa. You know any Clementines? No, no Clementines. Clementine, Clementine. Sings Johnny Shoeshine as Sheila refills his pink lemonade. Had a dream that you was mine. Parfaits are 25% off. Even so, there is scant customer interest in parfaits. At Cromley's, custard is king. Our biggest sellers are vanilla, chocolate, and butter pecan. We offer over 60 different flavors of custard, and yet half our customers order the same thing every time. They find comfort in the familiar richness of chocolate, the reliable sweetness of vanilla. They never stray to blue moon, passion fruit pecan praline, mocha macchiato. They stay loyal to the tried and true. I've been working at Cromley's since I was 16. Scooping chocolate and vanilla into sugar cones pays for my guitar strings, my lessons with Johnny, and my growing collection of albums by Sun House, Tampa Red, Blind Lemon Jefferson, and other old-time blues greats. Frozen Custard bought my first guitar, a Gibson ES-355, the same model as B.B. King's beloved Lucille. King named all his guitars Lucille, which Johnny says is a fine name for a woman, on par with Angeline and Clementine, but I don't know any Lucilles. I named my Gibson Kylie after the varsity softball stunner who sat in front of me in freshman biology class, but a day after my guitar's christening, Kylie stained the words, stop staring at me spaz, into my backpack with silver nitrate, and I decided that my guitar was better off nameless. During lulls in the custard-craving crowds, I've been chipping away at the love song. Johnny says a good songwriter can compose anywhere. Johnny wrote Low Down No Good Feelin' while digging a grave for his dog in the abandoned lot behind the brine mart. After careful consideration, I've whittled my list of potential love song subjects down to four. Chloe, Zoe, Fiona, and Samalakshmi. The rhymes aren't coming easy. For Chloe and Zoe, so far I have showy, snowy, and doughy. For Fiona, I have Persona, Corona, Arizona, and Swedish Krona. I'm completely stumped by Somalakshmi, but she's the only girl on my list who's ever actually spoken to me, and she's never made fun of my voice, or my acne, or my clothes, or told her brother to throw me in a garbage can, or stained slurs into my backpack with silver nitrate, and she's so pretty. Rhymes aren't everything, I think, 
as I cycle through Takshmi, Vakshmi, Wakshmi, Yakshmi. Some classmates of mine enter Cromleys. Boys, tall and muscular, wrap their arms around their girls like it's nothing, like it's the easiest thing in the world. Good-looking guys don't make me feel too bad. I can understand why girls let our school's handsomest quartile tongue them in the hallways, lead them beneath the bleachers, feel them up in seldom-used service elevators. It's the homely ones who really get to me. The boys who have buck teeth, widow's peaks, bow legs, lazy eyes, chronic eczema, and still have girlfriends. Why them and not me? What's their secret? Are they doing something right, or am I doing something wrong? Am I not their brother and homeliness? Shouldn't I be privy to their methods, their techniques? I take my classmates' orders. The boys' orders go smoothly. The girls, not so much. I always get nervous around girls. I stutter when w- w- welcoming them to Cromleys. Can't look them in the eye when they request their toppings. Get the shakes and drop their cones onto the linoleum. Sometimes forget the bananas and their banana splits. One thing that worries me in terms of the love song is whether or not I'll be able to sing to a girl if I can't even talk to one. Johnny tells me not to overthink these things. He tells me to sing what I feel. But mostly, girls just make me feel anxious and inept. I ask one of the girls to repeat her desired toppings as she hisses them back at me in a voice dripping with disdain. Possible loves pass through the halls, queue in the cafeteria, contemplate essay responses, convert decimals into fractions. I observe the objects of my affection from afar, like a wildlife biologist studying chimps in the Congo or lions in the Serengeti. Directly confronting the girls, invading their personal space, would only invite disaster. An adult chimpanzee can rip the arms off a man. A high school girl, I'm certain, is capable of even worse. In class, I wrestle futilely with a love song. I compose and discard melodies and scribble and scratch out stanzas as my teachers review the material for next week's final exams, outline everything we need to know about acute angles, slaughterhouse five, the rules of prison dodgeball, sedimentary and igneous rocks. How does Johnny Shushine do it? By his estimation, he's written over 200 songs. I can't write even one. In earth science, I pencil the word baby in my college-ruled notebook, then erase baby and write honey, then erase honey and write girl. Nothing sounds right. When would I ever conceivably call a girl baby? When would I ever call a girl girl? My teacher drones on about solar and terrestrial radiation, global warming, the depleting ozone layer, and the greenhouse effect, as I envision myself serenading my love to be determined later from the auditorium stage. I picture Zoe listening intently in the front row, then Chloe, then Fiona, then Samalakshmi. What do I say to them? What can I say? I write, I want you, then cross out, I want you, and write, I need you, then cross out, I need you, and write, I love you. Is it okay to say I love you to a girl who's never spoken to me, who probably doesn't know my name, even though I've had four different classes with her? 
Will I Love You be romantic, like in the movies, like in perfume and jewelry ads, or will it be creepy? Will I Love You get me my first kiss, or my second trip inside a garbage can full of discarded milk cartons and sloppy joes? I cross out everything and copy down key terms from my teacher's PowerPoint, crest, trough, Riptide, Tidal, Bore. A convergent boundary is when two plates come together, I write beneath my failed love tidings. A divergent boundary is when two plates pull apart. The bell rings, and my teacher reminds us not to forget about the finals essay component as my classmates pour into the halls, reverberant with student whoops, yips, yelps, and laughter. Meanwhile, I remain behind, seated and staring at my notebook, the word love written and erased and rewritten and crossed out again and again and again and again. The sinkhole is getting bigger. It's devoured the traffic cones, is now surrounded by obsolete cardboard promotional displays from Chalupa Hub and Old Navy. Johnny Shoeshine stands on a parking island, his open guitar case littered with spare change, expired store coupons, and one lonely dollar bill. As I approach the island, he sings the Final line of Got Me Spinning Round and Round, parenthesis, laundromat blues. A passing shopper tosses Johnny a nickel. I give Johnny my hearty applause. Hey, Junior, says Johnny, scoping out the quarters to pennies ratio inside his guitar case. How's the love song coming? Actually, I wanted to talk to you about that, I say. Got a minute? A strong breeze blows, knocks a cardboard cutout of the Chalupa Hub chinchilla into the subterranean depths of the sinkhole. Johnny beholds his earnings and frowns at lesser denominations of currency. The QTP ratio is not up to snuff. Tell you what, I gotta skedaddle. Hot day that crouton balance. But let's wait that song to shave in our next lesson, okay? Sure, I say. Chila's right, by the golf course. Johnny shakes his head. No, no, it's no good for me there no more. I'm staying for a spell with this woman, Colette. She lives above the old Felger's laundry on Churchill. What happened with Sheila? Not important. Johnny packs his guitar into his case, then takes a swig of something strong-smelling from a 28-ounce Chalupa Hub cup. Staircase is through the right of the laundry. Go upstairs, apartments on your left, can't miss it. Still Saturday, right? Six o'clock? Yes, sir. Spare change rattles as Johnny picks up his guitar and slowly shuffles away from the sinkhole. Oh, and bring some of that custard. Colette takes a special shot of mint chocolate chip. Johnny shambles off to the bus stop, passes between the parking lots, gleaming rows of sun-baked sedans and SUVs, and I head into Cromley's for a five-hour shift. My friend Nevin, who, like me, will be spending next Saturday morning in a robe and mortar board in our school gymnasium, is also working. During the early evening rush, we ask customers if we may please take their orders, if we may interest them in additional scoops, if that will be all, if they prefer waffle, cake, or sugar. During downtime, we help ourselves to the contents of the toppings tray and drink RC Cola straight from the fountain. Ten minutes before closing, the members of Piranha Box and two of three Swidorskis, notoriously attractive identical triplet freshman girls, 
Enter Cromley as Nevin and I have our way with the gummy bears. So I think we should open a full frontal lobotomy, segue in a zombie salad, and then close with Got Machine. Says Caleb Masterson, Piranha Box's guitarist and lead singer. I'm not sold on zombie salad. Says the band drummer, Donnie Holloway. How about Never Mind the Entrails or Disfigurement Parade? Disfigurement Parade killed when we played the bowling alley. Says bassist Josh Rudin. Welcome to Cromley's, says Nevin. May I please take your order? Piranha Box, the defending battle of the band's runners-up, place their orders as I sneak a few last gummy bears from the toppings tray and avoid eye contact with the Swidorskis. Even though the Swidorskis are three years younger and half a foot shorter than me, I find them to be extremely intimidating. There's this expression that popular girls have, their default expression, worn as they walk the halls and congregate in courtyards and wait in line for custard, a piercing, menacing sort of smirk that warns guys like me not to get too close, not to get any big ideas. I imagine it's an evolutionary thing. Like in prehistoric times, the weakest Cro-Magnons kept getting clubbed in the head by their alpha male rivals during mating-related disputes, so the Cro-Magnon women developed this tightness in their mouths, this coldness in their eyes, that said to the Omega males, don't even try. So you girls are like, identical, right? Says Donnie Holloway to the Swidorskis. That's pretty badass. The Swidorskis don't respond. Nevin calculates the Swidorskis change as the two of three triplets tap away at their phone keypads, and I hand Piranha Box their haphazardly prepared cups and cones. Hey, are you girls going to the Battle of the Bands next Friday? Says Josh Rudin, grabbing his half vanilla, half strawberry. Our band's playing Piranha Box. It's going to be awesome. You should totally check us out. I don't think we can make it, says the next in line Swidorski, whose navel-bearing pink t-shirt says, sweet. There's gonna be a fog machine, says Donnie Holloway, and a raffle for a futon cushion. I don't think we can make it, says the other Swidorski, whose navel-bearing pink t-shirt says, spicy. Nevin hands the sweet Swidorski a $10 bill, assorted coins, and her receipt which she deposits into her purse without looking away from her phone. Girls like the Swidorskis are always fiddling with their phones. Maybe it's another evolutionary thing. They're telling us, whatever sparkling line you've prepared, whatever stirring phrase you're planning to utter, there is no way it can compete with the hundreds of insinuating acronyms and misspelled come-ons and sideways emoticon hearts that I receive daily via my 4G wireless network. A guy like me quoting Shakespeare is no match for a big man on campus texting, OMG girl, you're sexy. Oh, she doth teach the torches to burn bright. Her beauty hangs upon the cheek of night is powerless against the captain of the hockey teams to be are not to be you know brad's band is playing too says nevin starting to balance the cash register by counting the numbers of 20s maybe you heard of them the cadillac swordfish i kick nevin in the shin he hops on one leg and resumes his count no way brad i didn't know you're in a band says caleb so who are the other swordfish um I say, the sweet Swidorski's death by chocolate rocks perilously in my unsteady hand. Wait, you're Brad? Says the spicy Swidorski, looking up from her phone as her sister plucks the death by chocolate from my tremulous grasp. You're senior, right? In our sister Tanya's grade? Tanya Swidorski. Boy, does that name bring back painful memories. Hastily packed spicy Swidorski's sugar cone with a malformed scoop of Neapolitan as sweat drenches my work uniform and pours down my face. Rad, says the sweet Swidorski. Rad, rad. Hey, aren't you the guy that asked Tanya for her number when she was a freshman and then threw up all over her shoes? I thrust the Neapolitan to Spicy's hand and rush off to the walk in freezer as Piranha Box laugh 
laugh and laugh. Enjoy! I hear Nevin say to the Swidorskis as I close the freezer door behind me, embrace the oncoming chill. And thank you for coming to Cromley's, where everyone is a winner. Saturday at 6, I park outside Old Felcher's Laundry on Churchill Street and carry my Gibson and two pints of mint chocolate chip up the stairs to Johnny's friend Colette's apartment. Colette isn't home. Johnny opens the door, but there are pictures of her on bookcases and on the walls. She's younger than most of the women Johnny stays with, early 30s if I had to guess. I've never been inside the home of a girl my age, but through Johnny, I've been in countless apartments, condos, duplexes, and trailers of women the ages of my classmates' mothers. So I've narrowed my list down to four girls, I say, as Johnny spoons himself a hearty helping of custard. But I can't write a single decent line about any of them. Hmm. Got the old writer's block, says Johnny. Well, let's see if we can on block you. Tell me about them girls. I tell Johnny about Chloe, how we had chemistry together at sophomore year, and I accidentally started a small Class D fire the first time she wore her cheerleader uniform for Spirit Day. I tell him about Zoe, how when we were freshmen she wore these tiny black spandex shorts in gym class that made me repeatedly run into goalposts, badminton nets, and walls. I start to tell him about Fiona, who won our county's Miss Teen Sweet Corn pageant when we were juniors, largely due to her dominating performance in the swimsuit competition. But Johnny stops me. All right now. So they all pretty girls. That's fine. Everyone likes a pretty girl. But what else? What else? I say. Yeah, what else? You know, they funny, they smart. What books they like? What songs they like? Maybe they got it going on downstairs, sure. But what about upstairs? Upstairs? That's right. Upstairs. What makes these girls tick? What's rattling around inside their heads? What kind of blood they got pumping out of their hearts? I know you young, Junior. And right now, our downstairs seem mighty fine. But you get older, and as time comes, you find upstairs where you want to be. So what these girls got upstairs, huh? What makes them so special they deserve to get serenaded at your band battle come Friday? I don't know. I've never really talked to them or anything. Johnny licks mint custard off his spoon, then jabs his utensil at me for rhetorical emphasis. So then, it ever occurred to you that maybe they ain't nothing else? That maybe they ain't really special? Maybe they pretty girls who just pretty. Johnny picks up his guitar and strums a few chords. His guitar case, plastered with stickers, advertising wall drug, 
south of the border, the Corn Palace, in Tommy Bartlett's robot world, lies on the living room carpet next to a stack of neatly folded shirts and pants. Junior, thing is, pretty girls are diamond edges. And a pretty girl who's just a pretty girl ain't nothing else. Watch out! Nine times out of ten, that girl's mean. That girl's a vapor. Johnny plays a blues lick and starts to sing. Got a mean snake woman slithers across my bedroom floor. Johnny does have a point. The girls I fall for tend to be not particularly kind-hearted. June Carmichael told me she'd rather shave off her own eyebrows than go to the midwinter dance with me. Blair Hoffman told my world history teacher I was always staring at her, and for the rest of the semester I had to sit with my desk facing the map of the Holy Roman Empire on the back wall. Stacy Greengrass dared her chemistry lab partners to hold me under the freezing cold safety shower when our teacher briefly stepped out into the hallway, and Tanya Swidorsky was not at all understanding about my vomiting all over her shoes. Okay, I say, fair enough, but I haven't told you about Samalakshmi yet. Admittedly, I don't know much about Samalakshmi either, but I have actually spoken to her. We were put in the same group for a Romeo and Juliet project in freshman English. Our assignment was to adapt and perform Act 1, Scene 1, the part where the houses of Montague and Capulet bite their thumbs at each other. It wasn't one of Romeo and Juliet's most romantic scenes, and Samalakshmi spoke in a low, husky voice during line readings because she was playing the part of Tybalt, but I developed a huge crush on her just the same. She was so nice to me. She complimented my acting, helped me fine-tune my British accent, explained all of the double entendres, congratulated me when our group got an A. No girl had ever treated me so decently before. For about three weeks, Soma Lakshmi was all I thought about, all I dreamt about. She was the Alpha and the Omega. She was the One. But then the semester ended and I found myself in new classes with new pretty faces, and my unshakable devotion to Samalakshmi was gradually replaced by hormonal yearning for girls who looked amazing in tiny black gym shorts, but definitely would never school me on Shakespearean wordplay. I never had another class with Samalakshmi. I tell all of this to Johnny, and he shakes his head and laughs. Well, goddamn, son. That's your love song right there. Ain't crazy about the girl's name, but hell, old Shakespeare himself say a rose by any other name smelled just as sweet. You've read Shakespeare, I say? The good buzz. Johnny tilts his bowl of custard and drinks the melted remains, savoring Cromley's mint chocolate chip to the last drop. Now this girl, she sound like she got a good heart. You get a girl like that, you hold on to her. You don't let it go. Take old Nick. You see my clothes over there? All folded and such. She did that. I mean, old Felcher's right downstairs. She knows I got the change for a couple loads in the wash for Colette. She's a good-hearted woman. So you know what you gotta do. You sing to this girl. You tell her how you feel. But I really don't know her very well, I say. Don't matter. Johnny jabs his spoon at me again. You still got a fire in your belly over this girl. Well, do you, don't you? Um, I guess. Well, all right now. Johnny gets up and ambles over to his folded laundry. He picks up one of his shirts, holds it to his nose, and inhales deeply. He smiles. Junior, you go out and win that band battle. You go out and win that girl. This feeling
finals week, PA announcements remind me to strive for success, bring my cap and tassel to graduation practice, pay all fines through the school treasurer, refrain from year-end vandalism and misconduct. I sit in uncomfortable chairs, at tables, and at desks, and darken small ovals with a number two pencil until the bell rings, signaling more ovals, more number two pencils, more uncomfortable chairs. In some classes, there's an essay component. I stare at the white void of an 8.5 by 11 inch piece of paper, and when my mind can't conjure any relevant response to questions about the Silk Road, or the Great Gatsby, or the role of plants in the carbon cycle, it wanders instead to some Lakshmi and her song, which, despite Johnny's pep talk, is still just a graveyard of erased and scribbled out inanities in my spiral-bound, college-ruled notebook. It occurs to me as I struggle to wax romantically beneath my school's sterile fluorescent lights that I still don't know if Somalakshmi will even be at the Battle of the Bands. She's a bright, well-liked, socially connected girl. Surely she has better things to do on a Friday night than listen to Piranha Box and meet Fancy in our school auditorium. She definitely has better things to do than listen to the Cadillac Swordfish who, despite my frantic, last-ditch efforts, still consist of only one swordfish. Johnny keeps telling me, don't worry, don't overthink these things, just sing what you feel. But what I'm feeling is, what's the point of all this anxiety, all this frustration, of all these scribbles and scritches and scratches in my notebook? of agonizing over a song some Lakshmi is probably never going to hear. I'm feeling, even if she does show up, what then? I don't have the confidence to approach her in the hallway during passing period to ask her what she's up to Friday night, so how am I going to profess my love for her on the auditorium stage in front of Mr. Finkley, class treasurer Kate Milodkowitz, Barney Schmidtman of Schmidtman Home and Furniture, and several hundred other people? I'm feeling maybe I need to revise my list, maybe I need to readjust my expectations, Maybe I'm singing to the wrong girl. What makes me think I deserve a girl as pretty and smart and kind and decent as Samalakshmi? There are other girls, so many other girls. Statistically, at least one of them should be expected to like me. Maybe that's whom I should write the song for. The outliers, the girls on the outer edges of the bell curve, the tenth or hundredth or thousandth of a percent of American females of statutorily appropriate age, the select few who are actually capable of returning my affections. But a song titled, Anything I Can Get, just isn't as romantic as only you. The refrain, Baby, You're Better Than Nothing, doesn't have the zing of, Baby, You're the Best.
outside Cromleys, the sinkhole, exacerbated by heavy rains, has become a monster. Local news reporters gather around its gaping mouth, adjust their hair and wardrobe, and intone solemnly about the potential for tragedy and disaster. After work, I drive down Churchill Street to Colette's for one last lesson before the Battle of the Bands. With the love song still unwritten, I'm hoping Johnny can spark my creative wiring, topple whatever mental hurdles stand between me and a romantic masterpiece, give me the confidence I need to do battle on the auditorium stage. I scale the stairs to the right of old felchers with my guitar and two more pints of mint chocolate chip and knock on the door and a woman's voice, Colette's I'm assuming, answers. Who's there? It's Brad, I say. I'm here to see Johnny. The door creaks open. Johnny's not here, says Colette, looking nothing like the smiling radiant beauty in the framed photos on her bookshelves. Her face is red and puffy. Her eyes are rimmed with tears. Sorry to bother you, but um, do you know when he'll be back? He's not coming back. Colette shuts the door, and I knock a second time. Hey, sorry, really sorry, but do you know where he is? Because I'm supposed to have a lesson with him right now. I don't know where he is. I don't know. But if you're looking for Johnny, maybe you should go ask that goddamn Shanice. Shanice? I say, puzzled. I keep knocking, but the door remains closed. Colette, I'm sorry. I'm sorry if this is a bad time, but I need to find Johnny. It's really important. Didn't he ever mention me? Junior. He calls me Junior. Didn't he tell you about my love song? About the Battle of the Bands, Friday night? He's helping me with the song, and right now I've got nothing, and the battle's two days away, and if I don't... Hello? Colette? Can you hear me? I really have no idea who Shanice is. I really need you to open the door. Colette doesn't respond. I knock a few more times, impotently jiggle the doorknob, cut my ear to the door to try to detect any hint of movement inside, and then give up. Johnny Shoeshine, I think, shaking my head as I stare at the shut door. What did you do to this poor woman? And who the hell is Shanice? In Johnny's songs, it's always the woman who's doing wrong, always the woman who's stealing Johnny's money and setting fire to his clothes and slipping out his back door and rambling around with other men. But Colette, I'm guessing, hasn't been committing robbery or arson. She hasn't been slipping out the back door. She isn't the one who's been rambling. Again, I'm sorry, I say. I'm so sorry to bother you. I brought you some Cromley's frozen custard. I'll just leave it outside the door. I set the two pints of custard on the landing, then turn and dejectedly descend the wooden stairs, which creak loudly with my every step. Colette, she a good-hearted woman, Johnny had said. You get a girl like that, you hold on to her. You don't let her go. Way to hold on to her, Johnny, I think as the stairs creak, creak, creak beneath my feet. Way to not let her go. Is it worth it, my unceasing longing for love? It seems like whenever two people fall in love, it's only a matter of time before they start hating each other. Am I really one of the lucky ones, someone who can't lose any battles because I'm medically ineligible to fight? I don't know. I definitely don't feel lucky. Sure, maybe my heart's never been broken, but it's been dulled and blunted and worn down to the point that there's barely enough left of it to break. Heart metaphors are big in love songs. I've written the word heart so many times in my college-ruled notebook. But, like everything else I write, it always gets erased. It always gets scratched out. Hey! Outside, on Churchill Street, I hear Colette calling to me from her window above Old Felcher's. Hey! She says, again. Thanks for the custard. Don't worry about it, I say, standing on the curb near my mom's Corolla. My chocolate chip is my favorite. I know. 
I give Colette a small sad wave, and she gives me a small sad wave back. I'm sorry, says Colette, two stories up. Johnny never told me about you. Don't worry about it. So you're writing a love song for a battle of the bands? Trying to. Well, good luck. I hope you win the battle. Thanks. I unlock the Corolla and throw my Gibson to the back seat. What do you win if you win? Says Colette, her curly hair fluttering in the wind as she sticks her head out the window. A chaise lounge. Really, a chaise lounge? You know, a friend of mine's trying to give away a futon. So if you don't win, just let me know. Thanks. I give Colette another wave, then get into the Corolla and drive home. I turn on the radio, surf the dial. I hear nothing but commercials, static, and love songs. You're my baby, says my radio. You're my everything. You're my only shorty. You're my shining star. Did these songs work for their writers? Did they get their girls? Or did the songwriters already have girls? Were they just writing for money and fame? Zero percent APR financing, says my radio. One thousand dollars cash back. All the latest, most popular models. No money down. I turn the radio off, content myself with the sounds of the wind and the cicadas and the road. I pass Johnny's old haunts, the supermarket, the AMC 12. Cromleys, Kmart, Crouton Palace, but Johnny is nowhere to be found. I wonder what he's doing right now, and if it's worth it. If it's worth hurting the woman who just days before so nicely and neatly folded his pants and shirts. It starts to rain right as I pass Crouton Palace, and I turn on my windshield wipers at medium strength. Pitter patter says the rain. Creak, crunk, said my windshield wipers. Shh, say the wind and the cicadas and the road. Friday, the big day. I waited the wings of the auditorium stage with my Gibson clutched tightly against my sweat-dampened shirt, as the MC, Thespian Club President Tyrod Ferguson, says, "And now, put your hands together for the Cadillac Swordfish." Earlier today, the final bell rang, and my classmates flooded from their classrooms into the hallways, then onto the lawns, where they made summer plans. Distributed flyers for end-of-the-school-year keggers, tossed folders and notebooks and textbooks into garbage bins, and set their school uniforms and IDs on fire. Now many of them are in the audience as I nervously shuffle to center stage, plug my guitar into an amplifier, and speak tentatively into a microphone. Um, hi, hello. We're uh, I'm the Cadillac Swordfish. The other Swordfish, unfortunately, couldn't make it. After school let out, I finally ran into Johnny. I spotted him busking outside Cromleys as I was driving aimlessly around town in my mom's Corolla, as I was trying to clear my head so I could finally compose some Lakshmi's song. I parked near the sinkhole. Listen to Johnny finish "Yonder Lie My True Love's Remains," then confronted him about bailing on our lesson. Where were you? I asked. What happened with Colette? Do you know how upset she was when I knocked on her door? Don't you remember all that stuff you told me about upstairs and downstairs, about Colette being a good-hearted woman, about not letting someone like her go? And who the hell is Shanice? But Johnny didn't have any answers for me. He just shook his head. Spat on the ground and said, "Junior, human heart, a funny thing." On stage, I stare, squint at the crowd, see if I can spot some Lakshmi, but the stage lights are too bright, the auditorium is too dark. It's impossible to make out any faces. I drove all over after school, 
past the Quicken Lube and the Brine Mart and the Glue Factory and the Nine Hole Golf Course and tried to conceive choruses and verses in the front seat of the Corolla. And when nothing came to me, I thought, maybe when I see Somalakshmi's face as I stand before her on the stage, some celestial force will form the necessary words on my lips, strike the proper vibrations in my vocal cords, music and lyrics by divine intervention. But now here I stand, squinting at the darkness and at the light, with still no song to sing as the crowd grows restless and the three judges glance at their watches, one and a half of my fifteen maximum minutes already gone. Don't worry, says Johnny Shushine in my head, as the audience's murmurs become mumbles, then rumbles, then catcalls, then cicada chatter. Don't overthink these things, just sing what you feel. I guess what I'm feeling is, I wish I didn't have to be up here. I wish I had better options for winning a girl's heart than performing a love song at a home and furniture store sponsored contest. I wish I were the sort of person who exuded confidence and commanded attention and didn't throw up all over pretty girl's shoes. I see couples kiss and laugh and hold hands in the hallways, in the cafeteria, on the lawn, in Cromleys, on TV and in the movies, guys and girls, girls and girls, guys and guys, all members of a non-secret society to which I am continually denied initiation, and I think, I can do all those things, I've got lips, I've got a sense of humor, I've got hands, why won't anyone give me a chance? But I know there's more to it than that, I know there's something vital, something crucial, that I don't have. What worries me is, I don't know if it's even worth searching for. I don't know if it's right around the corner, if it's off a ways, if it's waiting for me just around the bend, or if it's out of reach, unobtainable, forever beyond my grasp. Maybe that's what my song should have been about. Maybe I don't have a love song in me, just yet. The judges watches tick, the guitar amp buzzes, the audience's clapping and clamoring grows louder and louder, and not knowing what else to do, I close my eyes and strike a chord, the first I ever learned, a chord I've played so many times alone in my bedroom, the same one that starts off Johnny's signature song. Got a low down no good feeling, I sing into the microphone, my voice larger than life, as it reverberates off the hard plaster walls of the auditorium. The rest of the words come easily. I know them all by heart. Seeing it ain't easy, it's enough to force a faint. Buckle down the trouble is removing tight. Till this war is through